Yeah, so my name is Daniel. I'm the RUF campus minister down at the um, New Mexico State University down in Las Cruces. Go Aggies. I know I'm in the wrong town for that, but you know, we love our ministry contexts. Uh, so I'm so excited to be here with y'all. Just uh, a, a quick word of my relationship with this church. I've been here before. Uh, I was actually examined for licensure, which is when the Presbytery allows me to preach in one of those rooms back there. And that was nerve-wracking, but here I am. Uh, Justin has been a great mentor. He's been um, a great resource, a great advocate for our ministry down in Crucis. And so I'm really excited to be here with y'all this morning and and open up the word and uh, just reap from the, the great wisdom, from the, from the great life-giving word that our Lord has for us. So my name is Daniel. My wife over there is Brittany. Just, um, I guess, quick biography. I was born in the country of Columbia. I say the country because I say Columbia and then people think like Missouri or something. So Columbia, South America. Moved to the US when I was seven years old, moved to Atlanta, went to the University of Georgia, which is where I met Brittany. And if you follow college football, uh, I think we think we're better than everyone right now, which is super exciting. Um, Did RUF at the University of Georgia. And so that's kind of where we drank the RUF Kool-Aid. And then we both did the RUF internship, which is like a two or three year long internship after college. And so I was placed at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. And Brittany, who uh, we started dating months before graduation, was placed at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. And so we did the smart thing and dated long distance across the country for two years before we got married. Uh, And I highly kind of recommend long distance dating if the person is someone who communicates well. And if they're not, then good luck. Um, And then uh, after that, I'm I'm giving you all like all the spark notes, but after all that time, we got married. Uh, I moved to Las Cruces, and then we went off to seminary in St. Louis, and now we're back. So that's the abridged version. We also have a daughter. She uh, showed up somewhere along the line in that whole process. Her name's Lucia, and she's awesome. She's asleep right now. So uh, another thing to share about myself is that growing up, my favorite movie was the the Disney animated Hercules. Does anyone know that movie? Disney animated? Yeah. So so it's it's amazing. Like I was this like, I don't remember how old I was when it came out. I lived in Columbia at the time, so I'm sure it came out a little bit later down there than it did over here. Um, I remember going to see it in theaters, and number one, I was terrified. Number two, I didn't know what a sword was, so I kept talking about Hercules and his machete, which, again, <laughs> contextualization. So in the movie Hercules, the main character Hercules, when he's, when he's a, a teenager, he, he has just kind of the teenage awkwardness that I think everyone goes through. It's a pretty universal thing to feel a little awkward when you're a teenager. Even if you're like hot stuff, you still feel a little awkward sometimes. And he has this amazing song, uh, maybe like 20, 30 minutes into the movie, which is like the song from Hercules. So first couple stanzas, I have often dreamed of a far off place where a hero's welcome would be waiting for me, where the crowds would cheer, where they see my face, And a voice keeps saying, this is where I'm meant to be. I'll be there someday. I can go the distance. I will find my way if I can be strong. I know every mile would be worth my while. When I go the distance, I'll be right where I belong. It's a great song. 
and it hits on something that I think is a common experience of every single human being who's ever walked on the face of this planet, which is this, we all want to be somewhere where we belong. Even those of us who are rugged individuals, those of us who, who uh, tell ourselves that we don't need anyone, we want to be somewhere where we feel like we belong. I don't think this is just Greek teenagers in the 5th century BC. I think this applies to every single person that's sitting in this room. We all want to belong somewhere, and I think we all want to belong to someone. And y'all, Scripture speaks to this. Because if that is a, a, a common human experience, if, if all of us are ingrained with this desire to belong, it must mean that we were designed and created to belong. And so therefore, the fact that we have this longing for belonging is a little bit of a tragedy because there's something missing from our humanity that is uh, integral to what it means to be a human being on this planet. If we're longing for belonging, that means that that belonging is missing. That's what I'm going to talk about today. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians, uh, the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4. We're talking about the great doctrine of adoption. Adoption is one of those doctrines that uses a word that we are common or that we're familiar with and just we use it in everyday language. It's not one of those weird theological terms like infralapsarianism or whatever, that everyone's like, what does that even mean, right? Adoption, we use that word a lot, and, and it means what we think it means in the Bible, but there's so much depth to it. Because essentially what the, what the doctrine of, of adoption solves for us in Scripture, in the Gospel, and what Jesus accomplishes for his people, is it solves this question, this deep longing that we all have. Do I belong somewhere? And do I belong to someone? Or am I just a floating speck in a cruel world where things just happen by chance and no one's coming to get me and I'm all alone? The doctrine of adoption says no. If you are in Christ, you belong somewhere, you belong to someone. So I don't know if it's y'all's practice to stand for the, the reading of the word. Is that what I heard? Okay, some, some nods. Okay, so let's go ahead and stand and I'm going to read uh, this passage from Galatians starting in verse 29 of chapter 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Continue to the next slide, or I can just read it from, okay, great. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. Thank you for your spirit inspiring your servant Paul to write these things down, to reveal to us what it means to belong to your family. Lord, I pray that uh, as I'm preaching, that everything that comes out of my mouth would honor you and glorify you and would be in accordance with how you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. 
And I pray that anything that I say that doesn't honor you, doesn't glorify you, would be forgotten and cast out. And I pray, Lord, that as we learn from, from your servant Paul, one of those martyrs that we just talked about, I pray that it would serve not to puff us up and make us more prideful, but to bring us down and to remind us of the gospel and our need for salvation, our need for grace, and that it would make us people who look more and more like your son. Let us love you better because you loved us first. In your son's name I pray, amen. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. Uh, and I, I do this at RUF. Uh, I'm going to set a timer for myself just so we're not here for super, super long. Um, let's see if I can do this. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, we're here in the, in the letter of Galatians, and just to give you a little bit of a lay of the land of where we've been through with RUF at New Mexico State, so this semester we've been walking through this series called The Story. And basically what I'm trying to show students is that the Bible is not a collection of stories of, of heroes to be imitated, but it's one long story. We're basically taking Jesus' words in Luke chapter 24 seriously, that the Bible is one long story whose main character is not me, it's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not David, it's Jesus. And that's really important because what that means is that it's not this book where we simply turn to a page and try to imitate the life of the person that we're reading about unless it's the life of Jesus, right? Because if you look at the people in the Bible, a lot of them don't have lives that we should be imitating. But what it is is the Bible is this great long rescue mission, this love letter where the creator God has, uh, is the author of the story and he's written himself into the story and the story is of a good creation that he made and a people that he created to live with him in the holy of holies, which is the garden of Eden, the goodness of God permeating all of creation and then the creatures, human beings, rebel. And sin enters the world and everything goes wrong. And so as soon as Genesis 3 happens and sin enters the world, God gets to work to redeem his people. So the whole middle chunk of the Bible is the, is the rescue mission, which is finally sees its culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And so what we've been doing at RUF for the last couple of weeks is looking at the work of Jesus and what it does for Christians from different angles. And this passage talks about adoption. Adoption. Now, the, the, the letter to the Galatians is written to several churches in, in the region of Galatia, which is probably in modern-day Turkey. And what's happening in Galatia is there, there are these people who are showing up to these churches. These are non-Jewish churches. And they're basically saying, if you want to become a Christian, if you want access into the household, if you want to belong, then you have to go through us first. You have to belong the way we set the terms of belonging. And the way they set the terms of belonging was you have to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. What Paul is arguing throughout the book of Galatians, which he gets a little spicy, which I like, right? what he's arguing throughout the book of Galatians is any time you add anything to the gospel, you end up subtracting from the gospel. Anytime you put anything as the gatekeeper, anything that's not Jesus, as the gatekeeper into the family of God, you end up with something other than Christianity, which is why this section is introduced in verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
This is a shocking thing for Paul to say to people who uh, their whole religious furniture is shaped around belong to our people group so that you might belong to the family of Abraham, which is the people who got to benefit from the blessings of God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You don't get to be the gatekeepers into the family of God. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who lets people into the family and who brings people into the family. This is the doctrine of adoption. So he he talks about adoption from two different angles. So number one, he talks about our need for adoption. Why do people need to be adopted into the family of God? And then he talks about it from, from the perspective of the wonder of adoption. What does adoption actually look like from the inside as it plays out and changes the lives of people? So the need for adoption Why do people need to be adopted? I I want us to take this metaphor to the logical conclusion. In in our time, in our world, people who need to be adopted are people who don't have families. Or people whose families are so broken that they might as well not have families. These These are the people who need to be adopted. In other words, people who don't have a place where they feel like they can belong or belong to someone. Right, the, the implication of this stuff that Paul is talking about, if we need to be adopted into the family of God, in some ways it's like him saying, you need to be adopted because you're orphans. Because you need a family. You see, the, the metaphor that he's using and that he's interacting with looks like this. In the ancient world, you would have rich people who would sometimes adopt poor people and, and give them all the rights of inheritance. So if you read Roman history, which I'm not going to do a lecture on Roman history this morning, but uh, I guess catch me afterward if you want that. Um, there, there were even certain Caesars who came up not by lineage, but by adoption. And, and their inheritance, because they were adopted into these powerful Roman families, eventually was to become Caesars. So adoption in the ancient world was this powerful metaphor this powerful metaphor for people who were brought into powerful families and given the inheritance of those families. But to be brought into the family of God, Paul says, you don't do the stuff that these people are saying you have to do in order to earn your adoption, which was to become Jewish, observe all the Jewish practices. You have to be brought into the family. You have to be brought into the family by Jesus. This is what he's talking about in the first three verses of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's kind of mixing metaphors here. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Ah, so adoption is not just you need to be brought into a family. Adoption is you need to be brought into a family where you won't be a slave. What Paul is saying is not just that you need to be adopted because we're orphans. We need to be adopted because we're enslaved. What does that mean? Smarter people than me have tried to figure out what this phrase, the elementary principles of the world, actually means. And Paul uses this phrase a couple of different places in the New Testament. So so the, the best thing we got is that the elementary principles of the world refers to something like the primordial forces that must be appeased in order to make our lives what we want them to be. 
And so if you're, if you're a pagan, if you're, if you're a, an idol worshiper, uh, being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world looks something like there is a certain statue that I go and leave a grain offering to if I want my harvest to go well next year. Right? That's kind of what it looks like if you are a, a Gentile, a non-Jewish pagan. Now he's saying something really interesting here. And that he's, he's also talking to this church or this group of churches that is under the influence of these people who are claiming that you have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. He's saying those people too, the people who are reading Moses, who are reading the Torah, who are reading the law of God, the people whose primary identity marker is Jewish, which therefore means not pagan, by, by treating the stuff of God like this tit-for-tat, I need to do something in order to earn something, they too are behaving like pagans. You see, throughout the whole of Scripture, the way God has revealed himself to his people has been a grace-first, a grace-leads interaction, a grace-leads relationship. You don't earn God's favor, you receive it. That has always been the grammar of the gospel. And what Paul is telling us is that anything other than that, in other words, being enslaved to this idea that in order to earn the things that we want, in order to earn belonging, we have to give something up of ourselves, that is not the gospel, that is paganism. That's another religion altogether. Now we might think to ourselves, I don't feel enslaved my temptation is not going to some statue and sacrificing something of myself to that statue in order to gain something. I don't know. I mean, this is a reality for a lot of people around the world, actually. Like, idolatry is not just a metaphor for a lot of people around the world, right? But I, I wonder if, if we can bring this home a little bit. What the, what the uh, elementary principles feel like today in 2023 in Albuquerque, what are those statues that we sacrifice things to in order to feel like we belong? Is it, uh, if you're in school, is it being good at sports? You have to sacrifice something of yourself on the altar of sports in order to finally feel like you have a place where you belong. If, if you have a corporate job, is it putting in more hours? You have to sacrifice more hours at work on the altar of your job in order to feel like you belong with the insiders of your job. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe, maybe you're single and you feel like you have to sacrifice something of yourself on the altar of dating or whatever or, or intimacy to feel like you belong. To feel like you belong somewhere and you belong to someone. Look, we might not be literal idolaters. We might not be literal pagans in this room. But I think this is still uh, so tangible for us today. If I'm honest with you, my, my temptation to belong is ministry, which is crazy. I sacrifice so much of myself on the altar of being a better pastor so that I might belong, so that I might belong to the presbytery, to the group of cool pastors, which is a contradiction in terms, right? There's no such thing as a cool pastor. <laughs> what is that thing for you where you think to yourself, if I just give up enough of myself on the altar of this thing, I will finally make it. 
I will finally be there. I will finally belong. What Paul is telling us is that is slavery. Being brought into God's family is is, uh, contrary to this calculus that we make of using relationships, using people, using our talents, our skills, our beauty, our personalities, using what what has been given to us as, as a sacrifice to leave on the altar of belonging. That's slavery. That is antithetical to belonging to the family of God. You see, left to our own devices, we will always enslave ourselves to something. Something that promises to fill that void of not belonging. Something that that extends a hand out to us and tells us, you can belong just as long as you do this and that. And suddenly we find ourselves doing things we would never dream that we would have done because we just want to belong. But then there's a shift in the passage. This is the but Jesus transition. There's always a but Jesus transition, and it's glorious. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That phrase, that the fullness of time, when, when the right time had come. Just, I mean, in line with, with the, the, the prayer of, the, of all saints that we prayed earlier, for, for how many thousands of years before the arrival of Jesus did God's saints look forward to the day when he would make good on his promises? And for how many thousands of years did God's people say, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And then Paul tells us, when the time was right, the one came. And what did he do? At the right time, the Father sent Jesus to set slaves free. Look at verse 5. He sent Jesus to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, he's mixing these metaphors and he's, he's hearkening back. The, the law that he's talking about is probably the law of Moses, right? And so he's making this big, bold, spicy claim that if you're using the law of Moses as this tit for tat, I, I'll give myself up in this way in order to belong, then you're behaving like a pagan, right? And what Paul says is Jesus came at just the right time to free those who were, who were in slavery to the elementary principles of the world, who thought that in order to belong, they had to give something up of themselves. They had to sacrifice on the altar of something. Now, we read this word redeem, and because we're used to hearing this word in church, or we've read the Bible, or we're churchy kind of people, we immediately jump when we hear the word redeem. We we immediately jump to the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. But if you're a first century person reading the word redeem, you're actually going to understand that it's a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for basically buying a slave and granting that slave their freedom. And so what Paul is saying is is picture a rich man sending his son into the slave market and his son buying a slave, bringing that slave into the family to be a free child in the household, not a servant. That's the metaphor that Paul's engaging with. And by the way, if we trace the story of the gospel, the the price that was paid for the freedom of God's people is is the life of Jesus. So in other words, God sent his son into the world in order to free slaves who were in the world, who who were supposed to be in the family, and the price of that was 
Jesus' own life. If you are in Christ, he paid a dear price for you. And at no point in this passage does Paul say, and Jesus kind of asked God, like, I don't know, is it worth it? Like, are, are these people that we're bringing into the family, are they really worth it? No, there's none of that. From the very beginning, God knew it's going to be a costly thing to redeem these people, and it will be worth it. And so what Jesus does is he frees slaves, and then, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons to buy slaves and to make them into children in the household. This one's tough. I've had a lot of conversations with students, so I know that this one's tough. And I've had a lot of conversations with myself, and I know that, that this one's tough. If we're Christians, if, if we live and breathe the elementary principles of the world, this tit-for-tat relationship, I think a lot of us will struggle to feel like children in the household of God. At best, a lot of us will feel like house guests. A lot of us will feel like we have to be mild-mannered and not put our feet up on the couch and have to ask for permission before we open the fridge in the household of God. And a lot of us feel like, like at best, our Father tolerates us. He's okay with us being there, but he, he doesn't like love it. Somehow the gospel is us twisting his arm into letting us in or something like that. And I think one of the most powerful things that we can start to believe as Christians, and, and I know that this is going to be tough, especially if our, if our relationship with our earthly fathers failed to model what a good, loving father actually looked like. One of the most profound and powerful things that we can start to believe as Christians is that if you are in the household, you're not a guest, you're a family member. And that when Jesus, uh, when Jesus brings you into the family, he's bringing you in with his credentials, that's what Paul is talking about in verse 29. In other words, Jesus is the true heir of the household. And when he brings people into the household to become children, what's true of him becomes true of them. Which means that we're not house guests. We are inheritors. And when the father looks at us, he doesn't look at people he merely tolerates. He looks at people he loves and what's more, like I, I, I want to I make this more personal. He doesn't just love his children. He likes his children. Because God is a good father. He's not a cruel father. He's not an abusive father. He's not a neglectful father. He's a good father who loves and likes his children. And I think a lot of us are going to struggle to believe this and actually live like this is true depending on where we've come from. How do I know that? Well, because the next thing that happens when we're brought into the family, when we're brought into the household, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This term Abba is a familial term for father. It's not... Uh, what we should have in mind from this picture, it's not the, the stiff upper lip, right, um, What's the sound of music, children, that are like all well put together and they're like, yeah, the Von, the, the Von Trapps, yeah. It is a familial picture where everyone is delighted in, 
where everyone can put their feet up on the couch and open the fridge and just grab a Coke Zero or whatever it is that you have in your fridge without asking for permission. Why? Because what's in the household belongs to Jesus, and because you belong to Jesus, everything in the house belongs to you. In other words, you are brought into the family of God to belong and to belong to everyone else in the family of God. I'm reminded of, of this scene. Has anyone seen the movie Blood Diamond? A couple, couple head nods. It's a pretty intense movie. It came out back in like the Elden days of 2005. Uh, so it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jimon Hansu. It's, it's about this civil war, I think in Liberia or Sierra Leone. Um, Anyway, there, there's this, uh, one of the main characters, played by Jimon Hansu, he's, he's an African man, and his son has been kidnapped and basically sold into, into uh, like, this child army, right? This was something that was happening and is still happening in lots of places around the world. It's actually horrific, uh, these child soldiers. And so um, there's this scene toward the end of the movie where the two main characters are kind of, like, taking care of business, and then they hear this gun click, Right, and they turn around, and they see this small boy holding up a gun to them. And this man realizes that it's his son who's been kidnapped and has been turned into a child soldier. And this is what this character says. It's like, look up the scene on YouTube and get some Kleenex because it will make you cry. It's so good. This is what the father says. He says, Dia, Dia is the, the son's name. He says, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vendi of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much, she waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister and the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. Adoption in the economy of the gospel looks like this. God is not ignorant. He's not naive about the places we've been, the things we've done, the things that have been done to us, the things we've done to other people and to ourselves. He's not ignorant. But if you're, if you're a part of the family, then he sees who you really are, which is a son and a daughter. And so picture God saying, I know what you've done. I know what they've made you do. I know what you've enslaved yourself to. But I also know who you really are. And who you really are is who I say you are, by the way, God is the truth teller. If you're a Christian, he has declared you to be righteous and he's declared you to be a child, which means that he gets to say, you are my child and I am your father. Come home. Come home and belong. Come home and feel like your father actually loves you and like you actually belong to this family. This is hard. This is hard because this is fundamentally not how a lot of relationships work. This is fundamentally not how the elementary principles of the world work. And so many of us, even in our own families, have been taught that family relationships are tit for tat. 
I actually taught a seminar on this a few months ago during summer conference in Panama City, this like national summer conference with RUF. I taught a seminar related to this, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the seminar, about how difficult this doctrine is for a lot of people. And I looked at my daughter, Lucia, who was eight months old at the time, and I just thought to myself, I want to be the type of dad who when she grows up and hears about the doctrine of adoption, it won't sound new, it'll sound familiar. It'll actually sound conceivable. And so I took her in my arms and I started walking with her around the house. I stopped at the bookcase. I said to her, Lucia, these are my books. I bought them. They belong to me. You are my daughter. Everything that's mine is yours. These are your books. Stopped at the TV. Lucia, this is my TV. I bought it. It belongs to me. You are my daughter. Everything that's mine is yours. This is your TV. Imagine our Heavenly Father picking you up and taking you around his house and saying, Child, this is my creation. I made it. It belongs to me. And you are my child. Everything that's mine is yours. This is your creation. What would that do for us if we lived with the freedom of being children of God and God's world? How would that shape our relationships? How would that shape our disposition toward ourselves and toward other people? What does this actually do for us? Well, I think there's a couple things it does for us. I, I, I know that, that this church right now is a church in transition. The church is always a church in transition, by the way. As long as we're not finally home yet, we're always going to be a church in transition. What does it do for us to be a church in transition where everyone feels like they belong? When things get difficult, people who belong, who who intimately and deeply feel like they belong, they lean in. They don't dip out. Because they belong. This is their home. This is their place. And so they invest. They don't dip out. If you belong to Jesus, you're not a house guest. You are a child and you are a co-heir with Christ. Everything that's true of Jesus because he's the inheritor of the, of the father's household is true of you. You can come home and you don't have to wonder if people are going to make snide remarks about you. If your father is going to comment on your weight or on your grades or on your job performance, but that he's going to look at you and delight in you, how is that going to change you and how you relate to the world? I think it challenges us to stop living like slaves, to stop living like we have to sacrifice so much of ourselves on the altar of belonging because belonging has already come to us. It's like that movie Dunkirk. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie about the British soldiers who were stranded in France and the German army was advancing and, and they didn't know how they were going to get off this French uh, beach. And so the, the tagline of the movie in the trailers was, when home felt far away, home came for them. So all these civilian vessels came and rescued the British soldiers from this beach in France. Home came for us. Belonging came to us. Having a deep sense that we belong allows us to be better friends, better parents, better children, better co-workers, better neighbors. Why? 
because we don't have to treat relationships like these arenas to prove our belonging. It's already ours. And when new people are brought into the household, if we have a deep sense that we belong, we don't feel threatened by new people. We're excited to share the Coke Zero that's in the fridge and to invite people to play Xbox on the couch with our feet on the couch with the people who have been brought into the family. We're not threatened by new people. We want them in the house. In fact, maybe if we have a true sense of belonging in the household of God, we want to tell people about the place where they can belong. That it's possible that belonging might come to other people, not just us. If everything is ours already because we belong, because we are inheritors, then we have nothing to lose. Because no one can take away God's household from us. Isn't that nuts? And if you're sitting here and you're, you're just kind of wondering about this Christianity stuff, you, you're not sure. You're on the fence, or maybe you're not even on the fence. You got dragged here by a family member. Whatever the case may be. If that's you, I just want to invite you to have a place where you can belong, to stop striving, to stop feeling like you have to give up so much of yourself on this altar of belonging. Is it possible that Jesus has come to set you free from that endless cycle of giving up something in order to belong. That home has already come to you. And so you can just be a child in the household of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness, for adoption, for being a God who brings people into his house, not that they might be strangers or, or house guests that you'll send home with Tupperware full of leftovers, but children who can feast in the house forever. Let us live like people who belong and who seek to point other people to the place where they can belong. In your son's name I pray, amen.